drop. Welcome to Story Forward, the storytelling podcast brought to you by the same people who gave you Story Fort Presents, voices of Tree Fort Music Fest. We are your hosts. I am Larry Rosen. And I am Christian Wynn. And this week, in a part of our 12-episode season exploring summer stories, we're going to talk more about summer books, uh, but we're going to come at it from a different angle this time. Our guest is Anthony Doerr, and I think it would take more imagination than I have to think of him as someone who writes summer books. Would you agree? I mean, yes, to, to a degree. Um, but he writes, I mean, his last two books especially, very they're, they're big, five, six hundred pagers with many different points of view or different points of view moving through time and space. Oh my gosh, <laughs> centuries in this new one that's coming, coming out. Yes. Um, those, those two books, by the way, are All the Light We Cannot See and Cloud Cuckoo was right in front Land. of me. Land. Oh my gosh. Sorry, Tony. Uh, which we begin we begin this episode with him by defining what Cloud Cuckoo Land, the phrase, means. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, maybe the issue here is something we've been grappling with all season, which is trying to figure out what we mean when we say summer book. What is a summer read? We started with a pretty clear idea. Oh, it's that book, you know, you read it on the beach and the cover's got like women's legs on it or something, you know, or or a palm tree or it's or what did Tony actually uses the term bodice ripper, doesn't he? Yeah. What is a bodice ripper? <laughs> is it just those uh, just bodies ripped up? No, it's up? a romance novel. It's a, it's a, oh. it's a period romance novel. Oh. Um, I love I that didn't... term because, um, you know, and, and when, when the because when the couple involved is caught in the throes of passion, the bodice gets ripped off, you know? Oh, okay. That's why they call you know, I mean, I'll start using that more often. Along with bona fides. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Um, but I think one thing that's interesting that we've sort of been doing is expanding that definition and finding out that it isn't just equal uh, that book. No. You know, 500 pages of, you know, depressed kid on the beach or something. I don't know. But... I think one other thing we've been finding is that we don't know anyone who writes those books. <laughs> well, we no, not like we know. We'll admit I mean, they those exactly, books. and we do probably know some people who've written those kind of books. Um, but this, we just don't read those books personally ourselves. Our take on the summer read is, is, I guess, just a little bit more like well, whatever interests us normally still interests us during the summer. So I don't really yeah. waver from my usual reading patterns. I don't feel like so. I think you're right. And I think that's a message we're getting from a lot of people we're having on the show is they say, I, I, I mean, I read the same stuff year round. So there was one question I wanted to ask uh, Anthony that I never got to. And that was, you know, he's a big traveler. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if he ever tailors his reading because he says he likes to go on vacation and read. Does he ever tailor the reading to fit where he's going on vacation? I bet he does, because a lot of times he's traveling and writing about where he travels. Um, so I bet he does a lot of his cool um, his research. He's a you know voracious. Is that the right word for it? He's a he's a yeah. he's a big yeah. researcher. Um, so he and he's a very curious person. We talk about this like always curious about the world, but I guess he's kind of just a curious mm-hmm. guy in general. But uh, anyway, yeah. He. I mean, let me tell you a couple things about this guy, Tony Dor, Anthony Dor. Um, he has won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015. So this is our first Pulitzer Prize winner. I think we've had on the. Uh, 
on yep. the podcast, right? So. Yeah. So anyway, we're hoping to have more. So if you're out there yeah. and listening, you want to come on the show and you've won a Peel Surprise, let us know. But he also has published a bunch of books, including the short story collections, Memory Wall and The Shell Collector. He wrote a, a great book set in Rome, um, a book of nonfiction, kind of a memoirist with his two young twin sons at the time and his wife called Four Seasons in Rome about Grace was his first novel All the Light We Cannot See as previously mentioned and won the Pulitzer Prize was 2015 and then this new one Cloud Cuckoo Land coming out in September so in that time between 2015 now he's been working on this book yep he said it took him seven years yeah, and I I believe it in getting my first glimpse of the book. It's a there's a lot of complex, cool plot twists and time, I guess, uh, jumps and character jumps and just point of view jumps and all that kind of stuff. So it's uh it's complex, but in it, what seems to be, I've only got to the first part of it because it just came in the mail. Our fancy advanced reader copies um, we got. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting to it here soon. But should we just move into the conversation? With Mr. Yeah, Anthony Dorn? I mean, and whatever that book is, it is certainly the antithesis of what I would think of as a book you read in the summer. And that is showing me, as we continue to do this, that our original theory may have been faulty. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess we didn't really have a full, full theory. And I'm listening to another of other podcasts, or I was mentioned the NPR lists that have come out. You get, I mean, everybody seems to take the notion of a summer read in their own direction. Though publishers seem to be probably the most, I guess, have the most niche I'd idea say. of it. Yeah, so they yeah. can. Yeah. yeah, let's get to that interview. Yeah. But, you know, I'm sure we'll revisit this as our season comes to a close. But for now, let's uh, dig in because that's what you do with Tony Dore. Digging in. So here we are, some of us in studio, Larry in San Francisco currently on Zoom. But we patched mm-hmm. him in and we're here with Anthony Dore a.k.a. Tony Dore, a friend of the Boise and worldwide literary community, Pulitzer Prize winner. But you got all his uh, bona fides already. But uh, thanks, Tony, for hopping in here with us. Sure, Christian, Larry, thanks. Thanks, Brett, too. Yes, Brett Battistain. I'd like to say his last name. It's a very powerful, poetic last like name, I think. Audio. I don't know. Yeah, so, Larry. Can, can I ask a question before we get started? Okay, uh, sure. I, I always notice a lot of writers have their writing name be their full name, and then they introduce themselves as the nickname. Was that a conscious choice, or did it just sort of happen? Uh, it just sort of happened. The first story I sold, when they asked for my, uh, what is it, the 1099 or the social security number thing you have to fill out to get paid, Yeah. which I always just did, I'd like to get my first apartment or whatever, I put Anthony, and then the story got published as Anthony, and then I was Anthony. But always to my friends and my mom, I was Tony. My dad rolled Anthony once in a while as a kid, or when I was in trouble, I yeah. could be Anthony. <laughs> and like, you know, when I graduated from high school, I was Anthony Dore or whatever. So yeah, yeah. kind of worked both ways. Do you have a preference? I put on the podcast, do you want us to keep with Anthony? Oh, or? I have no preference at all. But it is interesting how sometimes 1% of people don't know Anthony and Tony are the same thing, <laughs> which I never saw coming. Yeah. It's always it's always interesting to me because it seems like a port of entry for fans versus friends. You yeah. know, if someone's oh, I love Anthony Doerr's work, and then I say, oh yeah, Tony, I met him. Oh, Tony. I know it is one of those things. I well, I yeah, I'm not quite as famous by any means, of course, by any means at all. But switching to Christian, kind of as a grad school, like getting starting to get published, I did kind of the same kind of okay, thing. Okay, and I've been wondering if I'm supposed to go Christian all the time now. 
It's, and then I'm, Chris is like something you abandoned. No, I just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not abandoned it. Yeah, but Larry goes back and forth. Yeah, I, and I just, I knew him as Chris for so long. And now sometimes I'll, when I'm on Idol, I'll use the Chris and they'll go, oh, he really knows him. <laughs> uh, that's funny. You know, there's actually a deeper question inside your question, which is I do sometimes feel like I really want to be Tony more and the consequences I have to sometimes be Anthony more in public and that's more draining to me I feel like Anthony has to be smart and Tony <laughs> gets to be an idiot kind of and uh, it's much more like if I'm doing a Sudoku on an airplane and I can't it's like a one star Sudoku and I can't pull it <laughs> off I'm like what the fuck like Anthony Dorr's supposed to be able to finish the Sudoku it's one star it's like rated beginner <laughs> And then I'm like, well, Tony can't do it. That's obvious. Tony, <laughs> Tony wants a beer. Tony doesn't want to do Sudoku. Yeah. That is, and that is really interesting because that, that the, all the questions about public and private personas, you know, that's really, that's the meat of it. We'll get into your work, of course. You have a new novel coming out in uh, September called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And we're, your publicist was kind enough to send us copies, but of course, it's a long book. I mean, that yeah, was only a few days ago, you didn't guys. finish it in four days. <laughs> but we appreciate that. And then, yeah, Have you get... guys heard that phrase before, Cloud Cuckoo Land? Um, I, I have. It's, I thought it is what it meant. Well, tell us what it means. And I know that like the Magnetic Fields had an album called Cloud Cuckoo Land nice. back in the day. So. Before that, color field which was terry hall's band after the specials oh, maybe that was it faint hearts that used the phrase cloud cuckoo land oh, it's bedtime yeah. in cloud cuckoo land okay i didn't even know that one interesting that's where i've heard it and there was a a, a place in the lego movie in like 2014 i think that movie was called cloud cuckoo land which i didn't even know about until i was almost done with the book but yeah, Cloud Cuckoo Land was a phrase. That's an mm -hmm. English translation of an ancient Greek phrase used by the playwright Aristophanes. This is mm -hmm. like 24, 2,500 years ago in a play called The Birds. And it means, uh, it's like the original buddy comedy, The Birds. And these two older guys leave Athens because there's too many lawyers and too many rules. And they decide to form a city in the sky halfway between the, the world of the gods and the world of humans. And they call it Cloud Cuckoo Land. It's called Nephilokokuya, which really means like, town cuckoo cloud so there's all kinds okay. of ways to translate it but it's really stuck more in i think english like british english and scottish and irish english uh, and people there seem to use it much more frequently it's been very interesting to me anyway to see how few americans have any referent for the phrase which is yeah. totally fine with me but it's just a utopia but it was, it's also the book itself is kind of my cloud cuckoo land it's like my my wild attempt of my middle age to build this whole crazy thing. It's a wild world died. for sure. Many different points of view and different time periods that you can get into. But maybe if you could use Cloud Cuckoo Land in a sentence for us, how would you like, how would you say that if you're talking to Brett Battistain over okay, here? Yeah. The way British people would use it is to say, uh, oh, Brett thinks COVID will be gone tomorrow. He's living in Cloud Cuckoo Land. That's that's oh. kind of like almost in a disparaging way. But you can also say um, if Brett lives in Cloud Cuckoo Land a lot, he's a dreamer. He's always off in his head. And I think of that as kind of a compliment, although I'm sure in like many Catholic schools around Britain, they would use it to kind of put down kids. Sure. Like, Get out of Cloud Cuckoo Land, Larry, and grow up. I think there's something I'll, beautiful about it you know, as well. It's like every culture has these utopian dreams and tells stories about journeys to utopias. And why? Like, why do humans always dream of these better places versus uh, trying to work to make our own place better? 
Yeah, that's how, a, how it's were you easy. chewing on that phrase before you decided to make it a title of a book? Great question. I was chewing on it almost the whole way. Once I um, book took me seven years, and maybe within the first year. I was reading, I was looking first at Sophocles and Euripides, and then I was like, Aristophanes, I didn't read any of this stuff before. Like, you know, nobody taught the comic playwrights, at least in high school. So uh, the, once I learned, I think, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but I think he wrote 110 comedies and only nine survive in pieces. Hmm. And the whole, my whole novel is kind of about the survival of texts and how they get destroyed over time, naturally or by fires or by religious zealots or by people in power. And, you know, it's incredibly rare that we have texts that are 2,400 years old. It's an absolute miracle how it trickles down through time. You know, the printing press doesn't show up until 1450. Uh, so I knew I, I thought I'm going to try Aristophanes, but committing to Cloud Cuckoo Land as a title seemed like a big risk. I thought my editor would think it was crazy. I think it's got a lot of cuz and cuz. Usually my mm. titles are a little more sonorous and literary sounding. All the light we cannot see. Exactly. That's, that's, yes. Right. But I wanted to kind of commit, like the cuz and the duh. I, I wanted to kind of announce, like, this is weird, and I hope you're on board for weird and imaginative. And this is the kind of book I don't think I'd be able to write in my 70s or 80s. I wanted to try to get this done. It's got uh, an incredible amount of different things a reader and I had to keep in, uh, keep track of to build this huge puzzle that is the novel. And so I wanted to see if I could do it in my middle ages. Is yeah. it the type you could have written in your 20s or 30s? No, my gosh, no, because there's so much research. I mean, this stuff is so – it involves so much weird, uh, frustrating time alone at your desk that I was much more interested in seeing other human beings and having friendships, Larry. <laughs> there was some uh, finger quotes going on there, so um, – yeah, and so one of the things we've been talking about with our summer stories series here on Story Forward um, is the notion of the summer read. And it's a very, you know, it's a little bit nebulous or complicated and obviously very individual. And I mean, one definition I heard the other day on uh, NPR was that it, this this critic was like, she liked to read books that don't really emotionally challenge you as much in the summer, you know, or kind of something that you could, it's more of a page turner or kind of, you know, in the literary realm, but maybe not not going to the dark places. Um, I'm curious what you think of um, in your own reading experience or like within the publishing world, you obviously have lots of books and many other things published out there. And, and have you ever had a book published in the summer? Uh, although I came out in May, does okay. that count? I that guess, counts. yeah. I do think, yeah, yeah, they think of August as kind of a dead space, publishers do, but I don't speak for any of that. I don't care but i'm a very weird reader i don't think of seasonal reading or anything like that and i'm always just chasing my own curiosities i think in summer you actually have a little more time to take on stuff of depth because i tend to maybe the kids are off so if i take them somewhere or if i take them backpacking in particular where there's no screens and we're all reading in the tent mm -hmm. i think it's good to have something immersive and challenging and I mean, for me, like, whatever, beach reads, I totally get all that. But for me, I'm like, you only live, if you're super freaking lucky, you live 80 years, 60 of those years are above 20. And so in 60 years, if you read a book a week, that's only 50, really, 50 books a year. Like, you can't right. waste books. So, uh, you know, what, are you going to be on your deathbed and be like, I never tried the Brontes? Like, get there, <laughs> try it out. <laughs> well, I feel like, I feel like when they talk about you know, a summer read, I actually disagree with that assessment because I think a summer read is one that you're uniquely emotionally invested in. 
rather than intellectually invested in. But a summer read is something that someone would normally read on vacation when they're lying on a beach to get away from it all. Now, the, the two stories I've written that you wrote about being on vacation, that doesn't seem like your kind of vacation. Right, mm. right. I, I also, I can sit still on a beach for about 11 seconds, and then I'm like, let's do stuff. Let's find some <laughs> creatures. So I think uh, it just doesn't work for me as much. That that said, you know, I'm just always looking for a book I can bring with me somewhere that, you know, I'm only happy if I'm, if I'm living my life, working on a book that's engaging me, so I'm getting to live those lives, and then also reading a book I love. There's kind of like three streams. There's kind of the three keys to my happiness, I think. And if something's a little missing in my life, I'm like, oh, yeah, I finished a book, and I'm not reading something that's totally engaging me right now. Uh, so I think it doesn't matter really what season that book finds you in. Just find yeah. something that absorbs you. I, I think Larry and I were kind of in agreement about that more so. And, yeah, even some other... NPR hosts I heard a while back were taking on um, infinite jest. So it kind of then maybe that is what they consider. They didn't use this phrase, but the anti-summer reader, one that you wouldn't expect to be a beach read. But one of them had a very difficult time get, penetrating the book. The other one really enjoyed it. And it took, obviously, it's a lot of work to read infinite jest. But And your books are the last two, at least, All Light We Cannot See and Cloud, Cuckoo Land coming out, are big books. Um and so we thought of you a little bit, just wanting to get you on the podcast because you're fancy and uh, awesome to talk to. But just I kind of feel like people might not consider like these last two novels, like summer read type of books, because there's so much time and and years go by and so much great research you put in there. And, you know, they're not they're very readable um, you, page by page, but it's not uh, they're not. You see reads, Chris tiptoeing around. I know. He's I mean, like I trying not get, to say that they're difficult. You know, they're, they're, they're challenging in a good, in the best way that good literary fiction is. So, and the characters are awesome. And I will ask you about your style too a little bit before we move down. But there's no here. sex on every in every chapter. Is that kind of what you mean by summary? Like somebody's getting bodices ripped in oh. each chapter. I don't know. Well, we had another writer on <laughs> who does enjoy writing the summary, um, Jessica Anya Blau, and there's a little bit of salaciousness to her books but kind of her newest books about a young woman um, who ends up sort of I guess living in this rock star's recovery house and then a crazy road trip happens and there's there's weed and it's set in the 70s and so cool yeah Yeah, fun but you can read that in the winter yeah absolutely so I think more what you're driving at is the idea that those sorts of books I don't want to say they're manipulating the reader, but they're definitely trying to get the reader to a point where they don't want to put it down. They've got to read that next. Something is, you know, each chapter is a cliffhanger. And I don't think that's what you're doing. I think what I'm thinking about all the time is comfort. Um, When I'm tired, for example, this has been a long week and there's smoke everywhere and whatever. I'm just like, tonight, it'll be really nice to, say, watch a show on TV where I know pretty much everything that's going to happen. I can kind of predict the arc of what I'm watching and or a sports game for example mm-hmm. I love I love to watch sports to relax because everything is predictable you there's a structure that's really clear there's going to be a clear outcome there's going to be a really clear resolution in in reading I'm a little different because it's kind of what I love to do the most but also I think I'm looking mostly to be challenged and to have formulas inverted or upended or just screwed with a little bit in terms of sentences, the way like Chris does writes a sentence or a short story, you don't quite know exactly what's coming. And there's a lot of pleasure in that for me. It's a little more draining. 
And so sometimes your brain needs to be a little crisper and sharper to take that stuff on. There's no judgment against more formulaic work. I mean, every superhero movie ever, sure. I'll sit down and watch those with my kids, even though I know really my fundamental values aren't going to be challenged. Like Iron Man's not going to go murder a bunch of people and then celebrate and then what, what, you know, become <laughs> a pedophile or something. You know, you're not going to be challenged. Yet. <laughs> that series right. goes on a while, so we'll see. But... Um... But I'm okay with yeah. trying to make work that's slightly challenging and yet still using the drug of story to pull a reader in. And that, that's what readers crave. So all humans crave is narrative and th that drug that enters your bloodstream. You can't get it out. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And sometimes, yeah, a Law and Order episode, you know, or a marathon might be perfect. Um, just, you know, it's, when you know what's coming down the pike generally. But um yeah, for you, I guess maybe some of your formative like summer reads I was going to get into too. I know, and, and I'm curious. I know I've known you for you know 20 years. We were just talking about this when your first book, um, The Shell Collector, came out, and you moved to Boise to be with your wife. I guess before your life before that, I know a little bit about your MFA time with our other friend Al Heathcock. But when you were young, like what were some of those books that really like maybe you latched onto at summer camp or down on a vacation or out backpacking with your family? I'm, that's yeah, like, that's yeah. a good question because now it's making me think summer when you don't have compulsory reading as a kid. Yeah, maybe that's what summer reading represents to you when you're younger is freedom because it's the first time. You know, once you're in school, it's the t only time you get to read and control your own reading. And the libraries were so important to me and so amazing to me that like. Mom mom would drop us off as kind of like a daycare, the library, and she wouldn't supervise what I took out. So in the beginning, of course, it's like Calvin and Hobbes and Peanuts and whatever mm -hmm. I can find. And then that quickly morphs into Stephen King, but she wasn't judging me if I take out Salem's Lot or Pet Cemetery, and I'm 11 in, you know, or 9 and I'm going to be terrified by it. She doesn't care. So I remember like The Stand at those mm -hmm. young ages. I had two older brothers, so I was reading kind of ahead because I wanted to understand their conversations around the cereal bowl but uh yeah early and then i remember discovering jack kerouac on the road mm -hmm. probably 14 or 15 that's definitely a library book in the summer i can visually picture it uh but yeah that that whole world like of the beats seems so cool to me and, and something my parents could not understand at all so that there's a certain <laughs> yeah. power in that as well like what do you mean you weren't at woodstock mom and dad and they're like we had jobs you know stop asking <laughs> us rude questions uh, um, so finding things in the summer of freedom, that, that makes perfect sense. And then, you know, once you get into your teens and late teens, I started reading probably a little more challenging stuff. I loved Paul Bowles. He's oh, a yeah. writer who said a bunch of stuff in North Africa, yeah. always with hashish involved. So I'm like, I've read a lot of that as an undergrad. I've kind of got into he and like Camus and Gide and Sartre, you know, and all that was yes. something that was like, seemed very sophisticated. Yes. Yeah. The cool kids talked about the stranger, or the kind of the sort mm -hmm. of cool kids, but they were also smoking and they maybe were, smoking. were secretly murderers. I'm like, <laughs> I wanted to know what the stranger was, you know. So I remember that too. That was on my own. That that's how kids today have Netflix in their pockets. Like if I had yeah. nothing to do at all, I just wandered around in the woods and went fishing and read books. Like I, I don't think I even maybe would have become a writer if I had what my kids have, which is every movie ever made. Well, I'm wondering too. I've, I've been sort of been, you know, since since Cloud Kugelan arrived in the mail in a very large box. Um, <laughs> I, I was wondering, and, and Chris and I were kind of talking about it a little bit too, that what makes a writer decide to be the kind of writer who writes a tome 
who takes on a really challenging book instead of like, I'm going to tell a little story about a guy who falls in love with someone that doesn't work out. But you've chosen to do that. And I'm seeing a connection between the first books you read were Stephen King books. Granted, easy books to read, but they're huge. And if you're a little kid, you're taking on a three, you know, 500 page book. Um, I guess so two parts. First is what made you decide to be that kind of writer at this point in your career? And given what you just said about your kids having Netflix in their pockets, do you think that sort of writer is going to become extinct? Hmm. Uh, first question. Yeah, there's a certain power. You could you could see it certainly in the next generation with Harry Potter, like this amazing pride that, say, a 12-year-old feels when she crushes 800 pages of book, and she should. Like, it's pretty incredible. You read, I think the seventh one was, I don't know, 900 pages or something like that. There's something really, um, you just feel proud of yourself when you do that, when you see it, and then you're immersed in it. I know that I'm a little ignorant about the video game world, and I know that video games do offer 20-hour-plus immersion into narrative. That can be extremely engaging. But for me, still, long, chunky novels are that the the only, maybe long series is like, oh, I've never watched Grey's Anatomy or something, and that can immerse you the same way. Mm. But um, I love being immersed where you get to go to bed each night and you know, I've got, I'm in this world, I'm familiar with the surroundings, the syntax, the the characters, the setting, and I get to re-enter that world. It's such an exciting place, and I really mourn it when I finish a long novel. I think maybe even before Stephen King, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, those three books are also pretty lengthy, and they, yeah. they give you this big reward, like, what a world I got to enter. Uh, so I'm always kind of chasing that immersion, that, that parallel life. I think partially this insecurity that my own life is sort of dull and mundane. So then you're like, okay, cool, I, have, I get to live these fantasy lives through through reading and then, and then of course, the books you make. As for like the ambition about why you would try huge projects, yes. uh, I think it's fear of death. I'm totally afraid of dying and I'm just like, I'm gonna try to do stuff before I go. Like I just am so aware that we're barely here. I don't really believe in reincarnation or anything. Like we're just, the more you look at the history of, of species and the history of the planet, four and a half billion years like we are nothing we're just this tiny mm -hmm. finger snap and so i'm just trying to learn as much and see as much and get as much done show my kids as much as i can before i die yeah that's a that's a great insight that's very you know simple on one end right we should know this but we don't think of that all the time and yeah i, I know knowing you as a person and then your through your fiction and also you, you do write a lot about say science or nature or travel um and that kind of innate curiosities that you obviously shows very very strongly in your writing and i do remember you at the ymca one time this is it's a funny anecdote i think about with these there's this really complex like stretching machine and and our apparatus and i remember this i didn't i don't think you even saw me but you're just like looking at it and you're like trying to figure out like it has like 18 bars on it and all these little pulley things and just you were trying to figure it out. So that what you just said is very much like... Yeah, that's you're just very. But curious. then I also yeah. want to build that. Like, what kind of people build those things? Like the Jacob's right. Ladder thing on there? I watched a couple of people use it. I'm like, I'm going. I'm going to do the Jacob's Ladder, even though I'm totally not fit enough to do that <laughs> nightmarish uh -huh. machine. Well, it should be called Jacob's Ladder anyway, right? That's an, well, I think of the movie. Yeah. Badly. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. does not sound like it's going to end well. But, what is, but, but taking on that sort of challenge, you know, when you were getting ready to write Cloud Cuckoo Land, and kind of wrestling with it and, and deciding how big it was going to be. What in you, and I guess you sort of just explained it, but what in you, you know, decides, A, to take that challenge and then to see it through to the end? 
Uh, so yeah, Cloud Cuckoo Land is about 600 pages, but it's actually shorter in terms of words than All the Light. All the Light we cannot see is, I think, 125,000 words, and this new one's 123 or somewhere in there. A little shorter, so there's a lot of white space in the novel. That said, it is a huge puzzle. Uh, I wanted to try to tell the story of how a text survives and uh, what stewards can do, what what a steward of something that he or she cares about very much can do. Because really the whole idea started with this little tiny building in North Boise called the O'Farrell Cabin that yeah. Chris might know. Uh, I was asked to do something for the sesquicentennial or whatever that anniversary of Boise was called. Well, yeah, sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of Boise. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a great piece about Boise in Smithsonian Magazine, I think, it came out. Yeah. I believe I've used that for right. summer camps and not kids, like, appreciating where they live. But anyway, oh, back to the... I just was curious. I'd gone past the cat, that little building... A thousand times, I don't know, 800 times, and never noticed it, never paid any attention to it. And one day I just stopped on a run and read the plaque out front of it, and a woman, Mary O'Farrell, had raised six kids. It was the first family home built by a Westerner in Boise. And just the idea that this is like, I don't know how many square feet, 100 square feet, you know, and that like here I am like in my 2,000 square foot house with air conditioning and Netflix, and I'm still complaining about parenting. She's got six kids crashing around in there, and it's built out of cottonwood, really crappy lumber, and it's still standing. And finally, you know, I called Park Service, and I think I was the first person in there in three years. It's full of cottonwood and, I mean, uh, cobwebs and like a monster Uber Energy empty can is rolled up inside. <laughs> And so I just wanted to kind of reimagine what it was like. And also that the Historical Society had saved, I think, six or seven things, a candlestick, a lantern, a few things that were, had been in the home. And, you know, what, how the window glass, there's one window, how that got in there. And John O'Farrell was like twice as old as his wife and had fought in, in a war in Turkey and then had crossed the entire United States and mm. settled here. And I just tried to imagine their story in that essay, but... I think also just started realizing that things stand because stewards take care of them. This cabin had a story where like the Daughters of the Revolution came together in the 30s to keep it standing, and then a group of citizens in the 80s, and then again in the 2000s came to kind of refurbish it and keep the thing alive. And when you're a kid, you think all these things just exist. Like books just exist like leaves on trees, or libraries just exist, and they just get built. And it's only as you grow up, you're like, oh, people are actively making all these things happen. And and for me, being super worried about climate change right now in this climate of smoke swirling around, I'm just very interested in the idea of stewardship and what it means to take care of something you care about, what it means to take care of the one thing that gives us life. Um, so I wanted mm -hmm. to tell a story about how a text survives through time. And I knew to do that, I would I chose five characters. I would need to show characters at different time periods falling in love with this same story. And so, you know, each one was kind of a novella, so they felt smaller to me. But when you start m making five pieces that are about 18,000 words and then mm. smooshing them together, suddenly the thing gets quite big pretty fast. And then I kind of tried to interlock and interleave them all, too. But originally it was just a way to try to dramatize, to, to let a reader feel rather than intellectually hear like I'm trying to do right now. Hear about stewardship, to feel it. What does it mean to fall in love with something, care about it enough that you're trying to keep it alive after you're gone? Awesome. And I think I conflated two different essays. I was not in Smithsonian. That was a different one about Boise. But I've read this. It has a very 
awesome title, the one about the Eastman House? Yeah, Eastman yeah. House. yeah the, it's uh, a, from, it's oh, called uh, Hope is a Thing with Feathers. It's from uh, Emily Dickinson. That's right. That's right. It was in Granta. Granta. Sorry. To, now, people can go find it. It's out there. I want them to go the right place. But um, we're, we're getting a little bit towards the end of our conversation here. We got a little time. But Larry, what, what else do you have for us? Uh, I wanted to ask, to sort of follow up on that, how you get from, I've got a great idea and I'm really interested in exploring this, to making it into stories. Yeah, good question, Larry. That's just, I mean, Chris can answer that as well as I can. It's just work. You just trial and error, willingness to fail, willingness to kind of embarrass yourself and have a lot of wasted afternoons and just grind. You put on, I put on headphones that cut out noise. Like I used to just put on chainsaw operator earmuffs. Now I have fancy noise canceling Bose headphones. And I just sit there and try stuff and you sleep and then you wake up and you read what you have and you see how lousy and inadequate it is and you try to make it slightly better or you try to change a character's vector a little bit. Sometimes you're just looking for what music or what interesting thing did I tap into. Maybe three of the 30 sentences work for you, but you're like, why do those work? And you don't work too intellectually on it. You just try to say, I think those are working. I'm going to see if I can keep spinning those out. Um, and then if you get stuck, you go read the people you love. You just pick up some Virginia Woolf or Sebald or Melville or something. And you're like, oh, my God, this person is so good at this. You read a few paragraphs and it kind of rejuices you and you go back and try again. But it's an, an it's just an endless cascade of f small failures over and over that ultimately lead to something. And then hopefully you get it far enough along that you can show it to somebody else. And that's this big moment. For me, it's my wife. We try to say like, okay, now another person is looking at this. And the very second you hear those pages sighing out of the printer, you've already, you're already seeing what's wrong with it. And you're already like, okay, it's an act of defamiliarization. It's like, okay, this is now going to be a text that somebody else is going to read. And it's a mess. And now I got to go work on it for a lot more time. <laughs> And you yeah. have to love that. You have to love just the tinkering of making things. And otherwise, eventually, there's a lot of attrition because a lot of people who get into writing like the idea of it. But unfortunately, there's just a lot of alone time. I was going to ask, are, are you an everyday writer? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't really work weekends ever since we had kids, although I did a bunch during the pandemic trying to get this book ready. Uh, but yeah, for me, the paint dries pretty quickly. If you go away on a trip to San Francisco for four days and you don't even, your subconscious isn't operating on your project, it takes a whole day often to get the paint wet again when you get back. Sometimes you need those breaks, but uh, it's much better for me if I build a consistent, even if it's just two or three, sometimes it ends up being nine or 10, but two or three hours in the morning just working. Mm -hmm. That's how you keep the paint wet and keep the project mm -hmm. going. That's Otherwise, there's ice across the lake. Yeah. And I th I'm curious, you know, I mean, a lot, you've, you've been tremendously successful. Obviously, you've won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, you have won many other awards, the Young Lions and uh, the Story, Story Prize. And you'll, you can go to his website and see all that um, at anthonydoor.com, I think it is, right? So, um, but getting a, a great deal of success, um, how have you dealt with that when you're kind of judging your own writing or kind of like, did it make you feel, I don't know, like you have more confidence to take on a book like this or? No, 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 okay. no, never. Like that's all like external measurements of success. And um, it's amazing to have readers 
so I don't want to diminish it, but like, what is success really for me? It's like, oh, I'm still alive and my kids are alive. Like keeping your kids alive is a massive success for me. So I think, uh, I think it's just being able to be happy and recognize how blessed I am that I'm mobile and that both my eyes work. That's such a gift to be able to go see stuff. So uh, I don't think of my work necessarily in like a success or failure and unless it's mid midway and I can't figure out how to solve the puzzle I've made for myself. Then if I give up, that's a failure that is really mm -hmm. hard for me to live with. So often the success is finishing the project. For example, my fourth book is called Memory Walls, a series of six longer short stories. I think it's sold, I'm 100% sure it's sold the fewest copies of all my books, mm -hmm. but I think it might be my best book. It, it was the hardest one for me to pull off. So I think my publisher would say that's not a successful book, but I think for me it was. So. Uh, I try to, is, once you're, as you know, Christian, once you're five minutes into your writing day, capitalism, thank God, kind of fades. And you don't think sure. about all these measurements that people use, like sales or money. And you're just trying to make the thing as good, as well as you can. And that's a big enough challenge. That's, that consumes your entire brain. It's utterly fulfilling because it's so demanding. And thinking about the marketplace during that is just really paralyzing. Yeah. Well, I don't have quite that problem as much as you do. <laughs> I'm a short story writer primarily. Uh, and, but yeah, this touching a few people is just great um, with, with your work. Um, but do you and, check your email in the oh, middle of a writing day? I some Yeah, more often than I will. will I should probably. Same. Yeah, so. I have to use freedom to stop. But sometimes that little interjection of like a rejection from Granta on something yeah. you wrote derails me for the rest of the day. And I, I, you know, that's just a little tiny failure of nerve, but sometimes I try to use this app called Freedom to just shut down my email for the writing day. At least then you can live in this kind of more dreamy, cloud cuckoo landish space. Hmm. And then, nice. and then it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. We have to find an app to shut down the internet. We could just, um, you know, I know, turn off the Wi Fi. I know. It's very strange to use the same machine to write books on that I watch Netflix on or like get emails yeah. from my agent on. And I have thought about maybe buying a second laptop and trying to say like this one has no connectivity. But I also I use the Oxford English Dictionary every 13 minutes when I'm writing and I have a little oh. online subscription. So there are that might be like a junkie's way of saying like I really still need to enter the, the drug <laughs> emporium. But uh, I, st I still kind of need some connectivity sometimes to do to do work i mean it depends on how you can i mean i've i've started i've started uh measuring it when i'm writing in a journal and i say oh hang on a sec and then it'll be a half hour later let me say what i just did you know i hmm. said hang on a sec because i had to go check something and then here's what happened after that and then i finally came back yeah huh. that these tools on our phones are built to capture our attention and to fracture it. And these companies are becoming, what, trillion-dollar companies, multi-billion-dollar companies by being really good at that. And so it's really important to teach your kids mm -hmm. how to fight that because it's in me too. Like my attention is dying to go to these little blurps and chirps. And like what does that do for you? You're going to die and like you spend an extra hour on Instagram? Like what, what's that going to do for you? Yeah, it's and difficult to it's not be hooked in. Yeah. This is why I wonder if, if writers of ambitious books are going to continue. Yeah, I was trying to do the math a little bit when you brought that up earlier. So what, how, 
I guess, well, your kids are pretty much, like your kids, your twins are... They're going to be seniors this year. So, so like 17, 17, 18. So yeah. they've, have they had the devices ever since yeah, they were like... they were in, really the Wild West, the first okay. ones. And they, of course, according to them, were the last kids at North Junior High to, not, to get phones. And, <laughs> um, they were not happy about that? No. <laughs> because I get it. They've, these companies are also so effective at helping you feel left out. Like at every age, you feel left out if your friends are doing something on there and you're not. And uh, that's potent, man. Mm -hmm. Like when we take, they do something wrong and we take their phones for a week, they are like, they feel locked out. They also feel some relief from that. Because when we were kids and you go home, the school social world doesn't follow you home. And no. so you get, your room becomes a safe place. And for our kids, I'm learning like the even their rooms, even midnight, isn't necessarily as safe as it used to be because you can still be judged for who you are with your little device. And when they're too young, you know, not equipped for that stuff, you got to take it from them. And they hated it, but we make them check their phones in. Hmm. And now, hopefully, you know, the great gift. One more thing: the great gift of living in Idaho is that I get I have so many places to take them where their phones don't work. And mm -hmm. I worry about what Larry's saying is there's a lot of places like the entire state of New York. You probably have coverage everywhere. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe up in the Finger Lakes or some places you can find little pockets. But it won't round off the discussion. It was something gruesome about the increase in teenage suicides that coincides with the invention of the iPhone. Oh, wow. It's not, yeah, it's not great. No, not um, great. And, yeah. And the average Westerner goes outside one, uh, the go, go outside about 5% of their day. They're outdoors. And really, that seems like a judgy thing to say, but I get it. Like, you know, you're, you're busy, you're living in the city, you get from work to home. And, uh, but we, you know, we evolved to be outside. We evolved to be engaged in the natural environment. We, you know, evolved to hunt and fish and gather berries and, uh, it's extremely challenging on the human body to stay inside and stare at screens. Our eyes didn't even evolve to yeah. do that. You know, we're evolved to look into mm -hmm. the distance. But like you said, even, you know, you go outside, you can take this with you. Yeah. And I'm staring at Larry on a screen right now. So um, staring at you all day on a screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I would love to hear about the book when it's out all that kind of stuff. But one thing is, I know that you were just up in Alaska and nearly were eaten by a bear. <laughs> but no, I have a picture of you with a bear in the background. But you, this this kind of, I don't, what do you call that? It's not really summer camp. We just had a summer camp conversation earlier today, which was great. But this was kind of a version of it for like a month and you're totally disconnected. And one of your sons just did that too. Yeah. Which yeah. it seems like what you're asking for at least happened happens still in the world if you if you go seek it oh, out. Oh, I'm so proud of him. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to be able to afford it. It's like $4,000 to send your kid for a month, so it's expensive. So obviously some families it's not available to. But Knowles, it's called National Outdoor Leadership School. They're based out of Lander, Wyoming. They've been around for 60-some years. They're awesome. But they do trips all around. It's not just teens. You know, you can go in your 20s and 30s too. Hmm. But Owen went on a 16- and 17-year-old trip for a month to Alaska. Just the relief you feel at knowing for one-twelfth of the year my kid is connecting with other humans and solving problems outside. You know, he's out in the rain and they're cooking in the rain. You know, they you have to even figure out your food for the month and your rations and lay out the pasta and the beans and the rice and all these skills they teach you. I did that same course 30-some years previously. Uh, hmm. So I was so proud of him. He, you know, you're nervous because you never hear anything for your yeah. kid for 30 days. 
Well, yeah, when he comes home, I was just so proud of him. He seemed like he grew up about a year in that month. I was going to ask about like what his take on it. That's a whole different conversation we can have on the street corner when I see you down from your off, near your office and getting your lunch, which has been a cool like friendship and just relationship to have over the years after you being a professor of mine when I was in my MFA at B- BSU and then just seeing your growing success and your continued growing success. Oh, um, thanks, Christian. Thanks for everything you do in our community for storytellers and writers and poets. It's awesome. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's one thing that's distracted from the writing at times too, but it's really cool to, to get to do like this kind of program with Larry, who also does a lot for our community and uh, did a lot in San Francisco when he lived there. And uh, But yeah, Cloud Thanks, Cuckoo Land. Larry. When does it come out? Where do you get it? When are you going to be maybe on book tour? Um, uh, yeah, well, and I think the tour gets announced next week. And yeah, it comes out September 28th. And buy it at your independent bookstore, I guess, or get it from mm-hmm. the library. I know I did notice, too, you brought up the library several times, and I think it's you're dedicated. the book is dedicated to all the librarians in the world. Uh, yeah, librarians in the past, present, and future. Yeah, each yeah. of the characters, uh, libraries play a big role. That's right. Uh, yeah. there, right. There's a whole a huge uh, kind of subcurrent of this, um, a, a character in the future. She has this quote-unquote comprehensive library that she can enter, although it's kind of a play with Google. Is Google comprehensive or not? And you know. Okay. All things considered, really all things considered, you know, we're, we're always aiming towards comprehensive order as humans and we can never quite achieve it. But there's a lot of questions about libraries and uh, or the ordering of knowledge. And, you know, libraries are this attempt to uh, apply order to a disordered universe. So I love, play a lot with libraries in the, in the novel. Cool. Yeah, we're just getting into it. Um, and we were lucky enough to get an advanced reader's copy. So Thank your wonderful publicist for that. And yeah, thanks for being here, Tony, Anthony, Larry. Any final words, sir? Uh, just thanks to Tony for coming along. And, and if I if I if you ever go to a reading in Ashland, Oregon, I'll be the guy coming up and calling you Tony, not Anthony. <laughs> there we go. Thanks, Larry. It's nice to meet you, man. Okay, that was our episode. Larry has slipped out, left the building, and Tony's gone now too, back home to his fine and wonderful family here in Boise, Idaho. We want to thank Tony slash Anthony, our famous, most famous, I think, writer that we've had on thus far. No offense to all the others, but he is the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist of all the light we cannot see. And now... Hoping for great stuff from Cloud Cuckoo Land, which is coming out on September 28th, 2021. So you can order your copy. Check out our show notes where you can see just where you can order your copy and go to anthonydoor.com. Uh, we want to thank the Eavesdrop Studio team, Brett Battistain, and then Jared Bostrom, of course, who helps edit this episode along with Brett. And Mr. Larry Rosen, thanks so much for hosting with me. My name's Christian Wynn, and uh, we just ask that you keep moving the story forward.